Since July 11, people in Cuba have been protesting against the government after the economic situation in the country reached extremely low levels. And South Africa has descended into total chaos as riots spread after the jailing of South Africa's former president Jacob Zuma. Finally, a new wave of arrest in Vietnam adds up to a worrying global trend of governments cracking down on journalists and activists who express critical views. And unfortunately, the Asian country is not the only protagonist of this story. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Rights Pulse News Briefing, where every other week we address some of the biggest human rights news and events. I'm Laura. And I'm Nigel. Over the past week, we have seen South Africa descend into total chaos after the jailing of South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, for contempt of court. And this has triggered riots in his own province, KwaZulu-Natal, and the Kauteng province. The president was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment by the Constitutional Court after he had failed to appear before the State Capture Inquiry. The State Capture Inquiry was a commission which was set up to investigate corruption during Jacob Zuma's tenure between 2009 and 2018. These riots have been characterized by looting and the burning of buildings and shops throughout the two provinces. And at the time of this recording, over 200 people have been killed and others have been arrested. But why has this arrest sparked so much tension in the country? Why now? Well, Jacob Zuma argues that he did not get a fair trial. For instance, his legal team also made arguments before the Constitutional Court, stating that the court should reconsider the prison standards because Jacob Zuma was not afforded the rights of an accused under the South African Constitution. His allies have also argued that this was selective application of the law and therefore the masses should rise and defend Jacob Zuma. On top of this, the country has been experiencing shortage of food and the population is living under new restrictions brought by the country's third wave of the pandemic. So it looks like Zuma's arrest has provided just a spark to an already laden and mounting frustration, right? Well, yes, that's very true, Laura. And the burning of buildings has been attributed to some criminal elements aligned to Jacob Zuma. For instance, quite interestingly, uh, the Minister of State Security, Ayanda Dodo, stated that former members of the State Security Department who were supporters of Mr. Zuma were key in orchestrating the violent unrest in the country. Also, what is at play here is the economic inequality in South Africa, where the majority of the black population is economically excluded and there is high levels of unemployment. The failure of the ruling party, the African National Congress, to address economic inequality between blacks and whites in South Africa has also been attributed to the continued looting. It is also clear, really, that the police is overwhelmed and therefore they have called on the South African military to come and assist in maintaining law and order in the country. Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African president, released the military. However, the opposition parties, such as the Economic Freedom Fighters, criticized the deployment of the military, citing that the military is well known for the use of excessive force on the civilian population. This has been defined as the worst case of civil unrest the country has seen in decades, and 25,000 troops have been deployed on the ground. Also, in a televised address on July 12th, Ramaphosa condemned the unrest as, and I quote, acts of public violence of a kind rarely seen in the history of our democracy. The government has gone as far as defining this an attempted coup with pre-planned and staged violence to hijack South Africa's democracy. 
Yes, however, the president's comments have also been criticized for fanning ethnic tensions in the country. The main issue here is that the view is that the Zulu ethnic group is the one which is predominantly inciting violence throughout the country. And this has also been seen by the Zulu king coming out in a public address stating that the violence throughout the country has brought shame through the Zulu kingdom. However, it is also important to note that these riots have also raised racial tensions within South Africa, where the white and the Indian communities have made racist statements in relation to the looters who are predominantly black. The white and Indian communities in KwaZulu-Natal and the Gauteng provinces have been accused of calling black people looters and killing them under the guise of protecting the property and assisting law enforcement to bring law and order. At least 15 people have been killed in Phoenix, a predominantly Indian community in KwaZulu-Natal. On top of that, recently, Police Minister Becky Chele issued a warning to the population stating that controls will be carried out on everyone in possess of new appliances who should be ready to show proof of their purchase and if anyone fails to provide the receipt, the item will be taken away and considered as a looted good. A lot of arrests have been issued on this basis, which is putting extra pressure on holding facilities. Surely this is a problematic situation, to say the least. Precisely, because really it's, it is very difficult for the law enforcement to distinguish what is looted and what is not. Law enforcement authorities have also been investigating individuals who are suspected of inciting violence online, including Jacob Zuma's daughter, Duduzile Zuma. The Opposition Party Democratic Alliance has led criminal charges against former President Zuma's children and economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema for inciting violence. Twitter also suspended Julius Malema's Twitter account for 12 hours under the suspicion of incitement of violence. It is also imperative to note that these riots have had profound effects on the economy. It is expected that the burning and looting of businesses will leave people, especially in the townships, unemployed. These effects we are already at play, as we have seen that fuel stations have run out of fuel and people cannot be able to access basic amenities. Also, the riots have prevented the distribution of medicine and oxygen to all facilities that are battling COVID-19 cases. Yeah, actually the protests are having an impact on the management of the pandemic as well, as protests have halted vaccinations in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of the Guateng province, in which not all healthcare workers have received their jobs yet. The vaccine rollout in these areas was poor to begin with, and the situation is putting the population at a greater risk. So local authorities and health organizations have been calling on the government to quickly stabilize the area, as the fight against the coronavirus has to remain the main priority. Yeah, it seems that things are getting worse by the day. We just have to keep an eye on things over there. Moving on to another case that is under some aspects similar to that of South Africa is that of Cuba. On July 11th, people in Cuba took to the streets to protest against the government mismanagement of the economic crisis that has hit the island. Popular unrest spread out to over 50 towns and cities and they have been met by police violence and unrest. But Laura, can you please explain to us what is happening and why this is happening now? Yeah, so first of all, it is important to understand that although we have been hearing a lot about protests around the world lately, this is one to watch closely as events of this sort are very rare on the island. 
the Castro leadership and now the government to a smaller extent, and we will understand this later, have maintained a relatively tight grasp over the population and protests were never really a thing. A recent one took place between last November and December, for example, um, that was carried out by the San Isidro movement, a group of artists that manifested against the censorship applied by the government. And that ended with the government actually expressing willingness to open a dialogue. But this time, things might be looking different. The reason why the situation has escalated to this point are a few. The pandemic, of course, has played a role. The country has not seen too many deaths, proportionally speaking at least, but is now battling with the new variants emerging. And since all positive cases are hospitalized in Cuba, the structures are now overflowing. Plus, the country has been trying to develop its own vaccines, which has been done with money taken away from the budget used to import goods, um, since the country actually imports most of its food and resources in general. And it, it does that with foreign currency, which now is lacking. On top of this, health resources and medicines have been hard to get, adding up to the already difficult situation. Then tourism, which is a big industry on the island and a source of revenue, has been extremely damaged in the past year and a half for obvious reasons. And new reforms and an attempt at de-evaluation have not been strong enough to save the already difficult state of things and have triggered inflation instead. And then there are sanctions that have been imposed by US former President Donald Trump, which are still in place, ultimately worsening the situation. Actually, the U.S. Secretary of State recently criticized the country for not being able to guarantee minimum living standards to its citizens. But as noted by an analysis by The Guardian, these sanctions were specifically designed to, to do exactly that, to put some pressure on the country. And so, therefore, can we really say that the U.S. is responsible for this crisis? Well, actually, this is the exact position that the Cuban government has adopted, blaming on the U.S. in in some, which is a narrative that's been used before. Most of Cuba's problems have, over the years, been attributed to America's attempt at crushing the country and overthrowing its regime by provoking discontent among the population and via social media as part of its imperialist plan. Overall, it would be wrong, though, to believe that the US is the actual cause of the economic crisis, as the sanctions don't really hurt international trade. The problems really are internal in this case. As for the future, the situation seems a little bit spiky for Biden. On the one hand, a big chunk of the Florida population is made up of Cuban-Americans who voted for Trump in the 2020 elections and supported the sanctions he imposed on the island. Surely Biden does not want to alienate that section of the electorate, but at the same time, the situation does not look sustainable in the long run. Also because the sanctions don't really hurt Cuba more than they hurt Americans. So many predict that the president might go back to an Obama-like strategy of gradual openness and dialogue. Also because this everlasting enmity with the US is providing Cuba with the perfect alibi to justify its mistakes. The hardship experienced by the people, the economic crisis, it's, it's the perfect excuse really. But things can change dramatically if protests bring an actual political shake-up to the Cuban government. 
So I think the situation is still completely open for new developments. Following the spark of these marches, the government has reacted by sending out police to meet the protesters with violence, arresting and attacking some of them, even news reporters, photographers and journalists. President Diaz Canal even invited government supporters to take to the streets themselves to challenge the ongoing protest and in a way inciting confrontation and violence. This is something that has worried many international actors actually. In addition, internet has been blocked and social media traffic has been disrupted, most likely to hold information coming in and out of the country. With doing this, Cuba has joined a long list of regimes that have reacted to popular protest in this way with cutting communication. So can we really say that this was predictable? Regardless from its predictability, it still remains a violation of international law. But authorities in Cuba have actually always controlled the internet, censoring and blocking independent media as well as controlling citizens' online activities. Access to internet is really recent in Cuba as it has only been allowed in 2018. A lot of the country's education, which was one of Cuba's greatest prides uh, up to a few years ago, mostly goes offline and independent research via the web is often discouraged, if not punished. Apparently, kids can go on Wikipedia because the website tells lies. That's what Amnesty reported in 2017. Censorship and propaganda have always been characteristics of Cuba's governance. Uh, but in this case, shutting down the internet until protests are over or to stop information coming in and out is not really an option because the government gets high revenues from the fees charged for internet access over which it has the monopoly and it cannot afford to lose those revenues. And finally, earlier you say something about the role that the Castro brothers and the government played, something that would have touched upon afterwards. What is that? Yeah, about that, thank you for reminding me. What I wanted to address was the reason why many believe this is a sort of turning point for Cuba or a spark for a greater change, which mostly lies in the change of leadership and the capacity that the previous leadership and the new one have. Since the end of the revolution in 1959, first Fidel and then Raul Castro for the past few years have been able to remain in power mostly for the respect they earned during the revolution and for their charisma. Fidel Castro was by many seen as a tyrant, yes, but but others regarded as a liberator, a promoter of racial equality and an opposer to imperialism. And the legacy he left was, yeah, characterized by economic hardship most often than not, um, the repression of some personal liberties and control over narratives, but at the same time, it brought healthcare, education, and some sort of freedom to its people. The population was okay with Castro staying in power as long as they were able to get their basic needs fulfilled food, medicine. Now, this balance has been broken. People cannot afford or even access basic things. The population was used to queuing for hours outside shops to secure a meal for the day. It's been doing it for years but now there's little to buy and most of it they cannot afford shops are empty only 16 percent of the population has been vaccinated which is due to a mixture of stubbornness in wanting to produce homegrown vaccines and the inability to actually buy foreign ones as 
as I mentioned, foreign currency is virtually non-existent at the moment. Yeah, the current president has failed to acknowledge the population's complaints to solve the problems that are fueling the anger and frustration. Hundreds of people have been arrested and even more have gone missing. Exactly. Diaz Canel's response to the protest has been repression and dismissal, but this time the government has little to no leeway to bring back social peace by just suppressing protests. During the marches, people were chanting slogans like Patria y Vida, which means fatherland and life, which comes from an underground rap song that mocks the Castro's motto during the revolution, Patria o Muerte, which means fatherland or death. There is a strong generational conflict here, where the older people still feel some sort of loyalty towards the regime that brought change to them and that shaped their lives with specific narratives, while younger people have access to external information. They don't buy the whole, the US wants to destroy the revolution story. They won't change. And this president is not a strong enough figure to maintain power over them. I think, as you said before, this could actually represent a turning point in Cuba's history, and chances look pretty good at the moment. Also, the situation in Cuba with police repression, internet shutdown, and censorship leads us right to the next topic that we are going to discuss today, which is yet, sadly, another case of crackdown of freedom of expression by authorities. Laura, can you tell us more about this next topic? Yeah, it's, it's more than one case, actually. As anticipated earlier, Vietnamese authorities have arrested several journalists and human rights watchdogs with charges that go from anti-state propaganda to abuse of social media to erode the state's rights, and in two cases, tax evasion, which is a method often used by the communist regime to persecute those they're not too fond of. Among the people arrested are journalist Mai Phan Loi, founder of a non-profit center operating in education and former editor of the main state-run law magazine in the country. A few years ago, his journalist credentials were revoked and he resigned from the position uh, he was holding, although the situation was not further clarified. But the US State Department of Human Rights has suggested he might have been forced to step down following his meeting with President Barack Obama. Also, lawyer Dang Ding Bak was arrested, and this decision seems to be linked to its membership, together with Loy, to a network of several organizations in charge of overseeing the implementation of the EU-Vietnam FTA in areas like workers' rights, land rights, and environmental issues. Yeah, the Vietnamese government apparently has not been too happy with civil society representatives getting too involved in the implementation of the free trade agreement. And this has really led to the increase in the state crackdown on human rights activists and reporters, which has even led to lawmakers questioning if the country was actually respecting the terms of the agreement. Precisely. Overall, in the past years, the arrests of journalists have really increased, mostly under fuzzy laws and carry on lengthy sentences for like 11, 15, 20 years. Although freedom of expression should be protected by law, the Communist Party really is not tolerant of criticism and it really shows. But Vietnam is not the only case we should discuss. On July 11, journalist and cameraman Alexandre Lashkarava was found dead in his apartment in Tbilisi, Georgia, 
in suspicious circumstances. The man was one of the 53 journalists who suffered injuries following the coverage of the Pride March that took place on July the 5th in the capital. More specifically, he was hospitalized for a concussion and broken bones to his face and was discharged on July the 8th. After his death, the government took his body for a forensic examination despite the opposition of the family, but authorities quickly dismissed the event as possibly caused by a drug overdose. It is believed instead that he might have suffered from a thromboembolism caused by his injuries, and this would bring the necessity of an investigation for how the hospital actually handled his situation. He worked for opposition station Paveli TV that has been joined by several other organizations in marches to denounce the death of the cameraman and demanding the resignation of the prime minister. Yeah, journalists have been lamenting a lack of action by the government in protecting media freedoms and protecting journalists, which have been the target of far-right violence as shown by the Pride March beatings. But this is not all. Uh, another case on June 24th, uh, regards activist Nizar Banat, who died while in custody after being arrested by Palestinian Authority forces in the occupied West Bank city of Hebron. On the night of his death, 25 members of the armed forces stormed his house and arrested the man, who was taken to hospital and declared dead upon arrival. In the days before, he had posted a video on social media addressing the deal made by the Palestinian authorities and Israel on COVID-19 vaccines after some vaccines were delivered, it was discovered that the doses were near the expiration date, which later on led to the Palestinian authorities to call off the deal. Yeah, the initial medical report on the body stated that Banat suffered physical violence with signs of beating on his head, chest, legs, neck and hands, and declared its death unnatural. Authorities also stated they will conduct an objective and independent investigation, but the family is not too convinced of this since no testimony was collected among those who were present at the arrest and witnessed the assault. Well, Banas' death has sparked protests across Palestinian cities and towns, with people calling for the resignation of President Mahmoud Abbas. Protests have been suppressed by the Palestinian authorities, attracting criticism by international human rights organizations and international bodies. Yeah, Banat was one of the strongest critics of Abbas government and of the Palestinian Authority. He was actually very vocal on this. Now the Palestinian people who are still facing systemic evictions in neighborhoods like Sheikh Jarrah and Beita suddenly find themselves without one of the loudest voices in their favor. A lot of people are convinced this was an actual assassination and are now afraid that the people responsible will never be identified and will never face justice. The official reports and findings of these investigations have not been released. In fact, so it seems like a legitimate fear. It does. The situation, though, the way people angrily reacted to, to this death shows the deep frustration with Abba's governance. President Abbas is now seen as a politician who is clinging on to power, who calls off the first elections in 15 years, blaming it all on Israel, for the fear of his party, Fatah, losing to the opposition, Hamas. There is great discontent across the country, and these outbursts are a sign of people being tired. All in all, 
The events we address today are only some of the latest examples of authorities cracking down on journalists and activists who report abuses and denounce bad governance all around the world. In our previous episodes, we have reported many other cases of censorship, attacks on the media and repression of free expression. This shows a clear trend of systemic challenges to journalism, advocacy and freedom of speech, which needs to be reported, highlighted and denounced, as independent information is the key to accountability, both for regimes and democracies, without exception. Well, this is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you found this interesting, please do share it on your social media and remember to tag us. If you want more of this content, visit our website at humanrightspulse.com and check out all of our colleagues' amazing work. And if you have any feedback or stories you would like to hear on our next episode, then get in touch. Take care and until next time.